Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at ravinia.org. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. We love anniversaries on this show, especially big Chicago ones. And this week marks the 150th anniversary of the Great Chicago Fire. We all know the tale. On the night of October 8, 1871, a cow tipped over a lantern in Mrs. O'Leary's barn and burned much of the city down. Well, of course, it turns out the cow was innocent. We're joined by Northwestern University history professor Carl Smith for the real story of the legendary fire. His book chronicles how the blaze raged through Chicago and what happened in its aftermath. It's called Chicago's Great Fire, the Destruction and Resurrection of an Iconic American City. Carl, take us back to that time, to even just before the fire. What was Chicago like? Chicago as we know it, that is to say after the removal of the Native American population and the European settlement, which really began around 1830 and seriously, but grew in the 40 years up to the time of the fire, up to the fourth biggest city in America, about 300 and. 30,000 people. And it was just a remarkable moment in the city's history. It tripled in the decade of the Civil War. It was switching from a mercantile center to an industrial center, I should say, adding the fact industrial center. It was a, a, a central metropolis in the telegraph and railroad network in the country, a remarkable place and growing ever Day by day, I mean, the great phenomenon of the 19th century, particularly as far as cities are concerned. The city was, uh, it was booming with development. How did that play into how the city was built? Well, the city was built in such a hurry, as well as very quickly. And of its 60,000 or so buildings, about 40,000 were basically tinder, uh, bare pine buildings. And even the better ones were very, very fire prone and buildings were crowded together into lots and there were wooden sidewalks and wooden fences everywhere, even in poorer neighborhoods. So it placed very much, uh, very, very, very fire prone. And because it had grown so fast, uh, understaffed, undermanned, under-equipped fire department. And that October of 1871, what else was going on? Because your, your book talks about how it was really dry going into the fall. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The summer of 1871 was extremely dry throughout the upper Midwest. There were two dozen fires in Chicago in the week before the fire, including a major one the night before, the so-called Saturday Night Fire, which very much weakened the fire department and was one of the key factors in why this small fire could burn down much of a city. So with what seems like a a drought and and a heat wave at the time, were fires a common occurrence then? Oh, fires are a very common occurrence in every city. As I said, there were two dozen in Chicago alone in the week before the fire. But the conditions in this case, both the state of the city and this combination of 
events, uh, the weather, the fire, the big fire the night before made Chicago especially vulnerable. And the weather also included a strong wind from the southwest, so a fire that started in the southwest as this side, as this one did, mm-hmm. would be blown toward the center of the city and toward the north side. Carl, I want to talk about the uh, O'Leary's barn on DeCoven Street, sure. right? Because a huge yes. bulk of this book, it covers the events of, of the actual fire. It was literally tracing how the fire moves across the city. Yes, yes. But, you know, the fact that it starts near the O'Leary's. Just take us back to that night. What happened? Well, it was about 9 o'clock. The O'Leary's had gone to bed, they and their five children. The barn was to the north of the house. And for reasons to this day, and we probably will never know, a small fire began in the barn, a very ordinary and typical fire. But there was a one last factor, which was a delay in the signal system, which was otherwise state-of-the-art. So the fire department didn't get there for about another half an hour. And between the wind... And the fact of all these wooden houses packed so closely together, the fire was essentially out of hand by the time they got there. On top of that, the extreme heat threw chunks of burning Chicago high into the air, and the wind then blew it toward the downtown. So the fire leapt the south branch of the Chicago River with no problem and landed in the commercial downtown and leapt the main branch to the north side. The, mm. Really, the downtown and the north side were what got the most serious damage. Well, the biggest myth about this fire and what everyone, of course, learns as kids, really, is, um, you know, in the song, is is that Mrs. O'Leary's cow did it and the cow knocked over a lamp. But, of course, it turns out that the cow was innocent. So what else do we get wrong about this fire? Well, there's a lot of things. I mean, a lot of people think it burned down the whole city. It burned down about a third of the city, but it was a crucial part of the city. A lot of things, people think also that it immediately made possible the skyscraper revolution, but that wasn't for another 15 years. A whole other city was built between the fire and the time of the iron frame and steel frame buildings. Another thing is that Chicago suddenly wised up and took great precautions. But in fact, Chicago was very slow in putting in place any kind of fire restrictions and what there were uh, not enforced. And Mm -hmm. there was, in fact, another major downtown fire by any other standards except comparison to this one, very large in what we now call the South Loop in July of 1874. And the fire we know burned for days. Remind us what was lost? Well, a great deal. As I said, about a third of the city, 90,000 people immediately taken out of their homes, 13,300 of 13,800 of the north side buildings, virtually the entire commercial downtown, 39 of about 160 churches, all the major hotels, all the restaurants, just an astonishing amount of things. Uh, The damage was just brutal. Carl, let's look at the aftermath in those first couple of days after the fire, right? The population of the city, as we said back then, was around 300,000 people, many of whom had just lost their homes, of course, rich or poor, all essentially refugees. And the city was too hot to stay in, even after the fire died down. So what happened to the folks who were here? Well, it took a few days to die down, but there was no place to stay in much of the city. So a bunch of different things. First of all, there was an arrangement with the railroads that people could leave for free, uh, get a one-way ticket anywhere. About 30,000 people took advantage of that. 
But then the leaders of the city said, wait, we need these people to rebuild the place. Others took refuge in schools, in churches. If you were more well-to-do, you might have a relative out of town. But it was a, a very grim thing. We have stories of people camping on the prairie, camping in Union Park and bathing in the pond that was there at that time. It's a very difficult time. But Chicago also benefited by the fact that because it was in the limelight and in the center of the communications network in this country, the news went out instantly on telegraph mm -hmm. and aid was being sent from all over the nation and the world. The Chicago fire burned all day Monday, but Monday morning... It was front page news in the New York papers and people in New York and other cities were having rallies and sending goods on trains back to the city. So they had some assistance right from the beginning. Right. National and international help. Right? Absolutely. Japan, Germany, everywhere. Interesting. So a city is essentially destroyed. You know, the water pump stations are, are broken. Food is scarce. Families have to, you know, go to rations at a moment like this. Carl, you know, lots of folks are, are looking to blame something or to blame someone. What did the rumor mill look like back then? Like who got the finger pointing initially, well, aside well, from the cow? <laughs> well, the cow rumor is was, was there from almost from the beginning, a Monday morning while the city is still burning. But what people do in a case like this, first of all, is very natural for human beings to want to find why did it happen? How did it happen? And whose fault is it? There were several different theories of boys playing in the barn, of a careless smoker, a chimney or something. There were even rumors of possible terrorists or arsonists. But Mrs. O'Leary, what was good about her as far as Escapo was concerned is that she reaffirmed existing prejudices. It didn't shake the understanding of the way things were. She was a poor, illiterate, immigrant, Irish, Catholic woman. And so made a perfect scapegoat also that she was kind of disempowered. So she wasn't dangerous except in this clumsy way, but provided a rationalization for trying to have more management over such people. There were other things in play, but this by far was the uh, leading story and continues even to this day, even though she's been exonerated multiple times. Mm -hmm. Well, let's let's look forward then, you know, because what's what's really interesting, too, about this this tragedy, Carla, is that it doesn't take too long before Chicagoans start to see the fire as a good thing. Like, OK, oh, yes. now we have this opportunity here. You know, so what was going on then? Take us back to that moment. Well, Chicago's the ultimate booster city. So a anything is a reason for of its strength. I mean, people have talked about the, the weather uh, as being to great advantage to the city. So there are people even right from the beginning. It's a little bit of whistling in the dark saying, Chicago would be better off. What could be better than this? Uh, we cleared out a lot of bad real estate. But, in fact, uh, a lot of the, the predictive recovery, if anything, was, was underestimated. The city just kept on growing in spite of the fire, and people kept on coming here. Uh, the reason for this has a lot to do with the resilience and the entrepreneurship of the people, but it's also because of the very important place of Chicago in that national, international economy I talked about. The world needed a place like Chicago, and while it's a, a terrible thing to say, perhaps, if Chicago was going to have something like this happen, it couldn't have happened at a better time when all the things that brought it into being in the first place were, if anything, there in a stronger way. So it was built and then rebuilt largely because the world needed it and largely on external 
funding and rebuild it did within two years it was basically rebuilt and only stopped not because of its own problems but because of a major financial depression the panic of 1873 well during rebuilding beyond what chicago got right what did it get wrong you think well, we learned a lot of lessons here uh, in various ways. First of all, while a lot of individual buildings were built much more safely, uh, there was no kind of larger improvement in fire prevention. So the city that was rebuilt was in many ways quite flammable still and quite prone uh, to danger. And it took a, a while for uh, an adequate fire prevention methods and a larger fire department and a better fire department to be established. There was also in the uh, distribution of aid, uh, some of the prejudices that we see in the O'Leary story were also in play. A private group took control of the public aid that was sent to the city, claiming it was rescuing it from the crooked politicians of the common council. And uh, they treated the working people and foreign-born people in the children. And at this point, remember, almost half of Chicago is foreign-born, and almost the entire working population are what we now call the ethnic population as opposed to the Yankee, native-born Protestant population. And there's discrimination there and great tensions between classes along social lines, cultural lines, and economic lines mm. uh, that lead into some of the serious difficulties of the 1870s and 1880s, strikes, even the things like the Haymarket bombing and so on. Mm. Tell us more about how it shaped the political sphere here. Oh, well, a continuing face-off between uh, this, what I call this Yankee elite and the quote-unquote ethnic population. There's a mayor election a month after the fire in which this elite gets their candidate elected, but it's, they so alienate the population that by the election of 1873, the elections are every two years at that point, a unprecedented and not to be repeated combination of Irish and Germans who make up a tremendous amount of Chicagoans put in their candidate and win. And this kind of tension of the so-called reformers and the so-called career politicians uh, in many ways continues up to this day. So there's it, it, a kind of long heritage of this kind of division. That is Northwestern history professor Carl Smith. He's also author of the book Chicago's Great Fire, The Destruction and Resurrection of an Iconic American City. Carl, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And that's today's Reset. For more of our interviews, subscribe to this podcast. And please take a minute to give us a rating. It really helps other folks find us. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening. We'll meet again tomorrow. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.